At ASDefense.com, we were already selling the best knife brands in the world when law enforcement approached us about making them a knife. And so, the ASD Centurion was born. Centurion is made of tough D2 tool steel, has a full plane edge, and fully serrated spine. It's like having two knives in one. Centurion also has a gut hook, skull crusher, and storage inside the handle. Get your ASD Centurion today at ASDefense.com. That's ASDefense.com. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. And okay, all right, maybe Hillary is trying to find a way to run again. (laughs) We'll get to that later in the show. I still don't think it's going to happen. I think it's a lot of posturing and theater and things like that. But uh, it has certainly been an interesting day involving Hillary but it's been an interesting day pretty much involving everybody else, too. Uh, Robert Mueller's in big trouble. We'll get into all of that. Uh, I said there's a ton of stuff to talk about today, so we won't get to everything. We'll do our best to get what we can and hopefully have some fun with it. Anyway, I want to thank our sponsor, Second Amendment Arms and Range, located in New Carlisle. Today's Wednesday, which means kids shoot free with a shooting parent. Go to secondamendmentarms.net to get their contact information. Ran into this at 953mnc.com. A third Democrat is joining the Indiana governor's race with a GOP backer. Well, that's interesting. A Democratic state senator is formally entering the Indiana governor's race with the state's Republican schools chief expected by his side. First-term Senator Eddie Melton of Gary. Uh, Okay. I don't know anything about this guy, but he's a first-term senator. So we've got a first-termer from Gary running for governor, and a Republican is backing them. That's interesting. I'm not sure that anybody from Gary is is ready to run the entire state, but that could just be my anti-Gary bias speaking. Anyway, first-term Senator Eddie Melton of Gary uh, tells the Northwest Indiana Times that he's joining the 2020 race because most people feel that the Republican-led state government isn't focused on issues like increased education funding and health care access that matters the most. I don't know what any of that means. One day, we are going to have a politician who actually tells us what they want to do. And I, this has been increasingly rare over the past several decades. I realize this, but one day we're going to have one that, that actually tells us what their plans are. And we are going to be a little taken aback. I don't know that we're going to understand how to react to it, to be perfectly honest with you. Melton uh, has a Tuesday evening announcement event. Well, Gary, okay, he did that already because it's Wednesday. He'll be the third Democrat seeking the party's nomination to challenge Republican Governor Eric Holcomb. Uh, Melton's campaign says Republican State Schools Superintendent Jennifer McCormick will join in the announcement. Uh, McCormick drew the ire of top Republicans when she joined Melton at several public meetings over the summer as he considered entering the governor's race. Um, All right, so let's... Here's the thing. Indiana is considered the 21st best school system in the country. I'm talking about out of the 50 states, the 21st. That's multiple metrics that have measured the state, and uh, that's not bad, okay? We're middle of the road. We're pretty pretty average, and that's good. That's not a bad thing, all right? Obviously, you want to be one of the best, and, and okay, that's fine, but 
it's it's not necessary. As long as you're good and you're proficient, you're doing great. If you're in that lower third, you start running into some problems. Now, why why I'm bringing this up is um, we have a lot of people in Indiana that are running around and telling everybody that we should be doing what neighboring states are doing. Uh, neighboring states like Kentucky and Michigan, and Illinois and Wisconsin, they're all spending more money on education and Indiana needs to keep pace with them, even though we just increased school funding 2.5% over a two-year period. Uh, what is it, $15.4 billion, I think, uh, on education that we spend now. So we just had a 2.5% increase, all right? Which, by the way, uh, Republicans had lauded as a, as a uh, big success. And you obviously have to keep pace with changing technology and things like that. Salaries in Indiana absolutely are a concern. Um, but again, I want to throw out that when you have these things, like I'm starting at this paper here who is written by, <clears throat> sorry, it's loading. Uh, okay, so it didn't load. For some reason, the link failed on me. Anyway, it's a paper that was written by a professor here in Indiana who was talking about uh, the the spending and things of that nature that we have for Indiana schools. And it's K-12 through education. It's a PDF file that I have. I'll put it in the Daily Show prep. Uh, Robert K. Tautkaushian, Ph.D. It was written in March of this year. Education Funding and Teacher Compensation in Indiana Evaluation and Recommendations. It's a 55-page document, but the executive summary is a couple of pages, and it's at the beginning. So if you read the executive summary, essentially uh, what they conclude is that Indiana is 27th in funding per student, 27th in funding per capita, and 21st in funding per $1,000 in personal income. So we're 27th in funding per pupil. However, we are 21st in educational results, which, again, shows that we're efficient with money. Indiana does not compare favorably to its five bordering states, Illinois, Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin. Um, I, I forgot to look at Ohio. Sorry, I was in the middle of something. But I looked at Illinois, Kentucky, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And if we don't compare favorably in terms of public education funding and teacher salaries there, then why do we outperform half of them? Now, we underperform the, uh, the other half, but not by much, only by a couple of states. Whereas Indiana dramatically outperforms Kentucky and really outperforms Michigan. It's not even close. Michigan, you actually need to get your acts together. Um, in spite of our experience with Michigan schools here being very positive, uh, Michigan is not doing very well with educational results. But they spend a lot more than the state of Indiana does. So does Kentucky. And they get less for their, their money. So again, when you look at stuff like this and you're just comparing dollars, uh, you also have to take into account your cost of living expenses and things like that in your various communities. There's a whole bunch of math that has to be done. You can't just say Illinois spends more on education than Indiana does, and that's not all right. We have to spend more in Indiana to keep pace with Illinois, which doesn't make any sense because living in Illinois costs a heck of a lot more. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense to compare those two. Now, Michigan, you get a little bit closer, but we have to remember that there's a whole other state in Michigan that is completely different than the the Michiana parts of Michigan that are around us. And so they run into a lot of the same problems with cost of living that you see in Illinois. Uh, again, I didn't do Ohio. So Wisconsin and Illinois outperform Indiana education wise, but not by much. Whereas Michigan is bottom of the barrel in performance. I mean, they're in the 30, 33rd, I think, in the country 
Uh, then you have Kentucky, who placed a few states below Indiana. So Indiana spends less than them, yet gets better results. That should be something that we look at as opposed to just comparing dollar to dollar, which, again, doesn't make any sense when you're trying to draw these comparisons. So I, I'm sitting here, and I'm just kind of looking at all of this, and I'm, I'm going, you know, we had this uh, $34 billion budget that passed here in April, and in that $34 billion budget, uh, $14.8 billion was education. I mean, we're talking about almost half, almost half of the budget's education. And that was a 2.5% increase over two years. Uh, so again, um, to say that we don't take education seriously in Indiana, I don't know that that's accurate. I know that people want to be paid more. I know that schools want more resources for for education. I, I get that. You know, we always want more. I mean, certainly everybody wants more. Um, but if you look at the money that we do invest and the percentage of our budget that goes for it, uh, I, I think it's pretty clear that education is a priority in the state. Um, by the way, education at the last budget deal was the top priority issue. So they funded that before they did anything else. And and that was crystal clear because, again, it, it took up nearly half of the budget. So um, I, I don't know that I agree with his assessment on that. And it's a little interesting to watch the education chief, a Republican, uh, by his side. And again, I, I don't know that Gary, Indiana, has anything to offer the state of Indiana as an example of being great on education or anything else, to be perfectly honest with you. So I, I don't know. It doesn't. By the way, the city of Gary is not the measure of the man who represents Gary in the state Senate. Uh, I don't know a lot about him, and I, I don't mean to be sounding like I'm harping on him. It's just that he's out there saying that uh, we don't uh, we don't value education and we don't prioritize it when, in fact, we literally prioritized it as the number one budgetary item. It takes nearly half of the budget of the entire state, and it got a 2.5% increase, and Indiana overperforms for its funding levels compared to the rest of the country, which isn't a bad record to have, to be perfectly honest. Uh, could it be better? Of course, everything could be better. Uh, even some of the top states uh, in education in the country could be better, but uh, certainly that's something to look at and go, we're doing some things right. We're certainly getting more bang for our buck than most states are getting. We've got more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. Phone number 574-2595-953. That is 2595-953. You can also send a text message to 45364. Please put MNC at the beginning of that message. So the people have been texting us today and calling it. What was going on with the commercial breaks earlier today? We just had a whole explanation of that on the live stream, and you missed it because you weren't there. You weren't there. Uh, just know that they're fixing it, okay? And it wasn't our fault. So we're working on it. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> it was one specific individual's fault, but it had nothing to do with us. Okay, so we apologize if there's some delays here and there. All right, 574-2595-953. Do you want to thank R&B Car Company, locations in South Bend and Warsaw? R&B Car Company are your used car experts. Don't you worry your pretty little heads. I will definitely be talking 
about the Kurd situation. I didn't yesterday. Um, I had it on the docket, just ran out of time to go over it because there's a lot of people who I think rightfully are upset, but also don't don't fully comprehend what's going on. And and that has to I think it has to be balanced. And it's um anytime you're talking about the Kurds, it's a very complicated situation. So we'll get to that, I promise. Probably at 3.30, if not at 3.30, at 4. Okay, just kind of depends. I did post this yesterday on Facebook at facebook.com slash Casey, the host, former Republican representative Trey Gowdy. He was from South Carolina, has now been tapped to serve as outside counsel to President Donald Trump as the House impeachment inquiry expands. This is big news. Let's not forget Trey Gowdy is a former prosecutor. Trey Gowdy was the guy that would rip all of these um, these Democrats and these committee hearings to pieces. And he is um, he, he basically got disenchanted with Washington, D.C. And he said, that's it. I'm going back. I'm going back to a more clean and honorable profession. I'm going to go back to being a lawyer. So, so he left. He left D.C. and went back to being a lawyer. I know that a lot of people uh, wanted him to be the attorney general. And I honestly think it's just too political of a position for him to do it. So, you know, maybe one day he'll get back to that point. But he has been tapped. And this is this is key because for a while there, Trey Gowdy was not he was not a fan of President Trump. And he was actually on the side looking into Russia and everything else as as this possibly being a real serious issue. And then eventually, as the evidence kept coming out, he realized that he was on the wrong side of that and he, he flipped. Uh, but again, Representative Trey Gowdy has now been tapped to serve as outside counsel to President Trump. He's a former South Carolina congressman, did not seek re-election last year uh, to the seat that he had held for eight years. Gowdy was the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. He led the congressional investigation of former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton and the terrorist attacks in Benghazi, Libya. Um, so this is this is big news. And then, of course, you have the president yesterday. That was the breaking news at the end of the show, which we did tell you about. Uh, but we have the actual letter where they, the president's letter to, or I should say the White House's letter to the media about um, about the in, impeachment. I'm using the air quotes here, impeachment, because it's really not impeachment. We'll get into that a little bit later as well. We've kind of referenced that. A couple of times here recently, but it's not actually impeachment that they're doing. And so people are running around and and trying to say that this is an official impeachment inquiry. But it rules have been changed and things like that. And we have to talk about that uh, because the Constitution, you want to talk about violating the Constitution. Joe Biden today saying that the president needs to be impeached because he's shooting holes in the Constitution. What do you call changing the entire process for impeachment? So anyway. The White House said in a blistering letter sent on Tuesday to top House Democrats that officials in the executive branch will not cooperate with House Democrats' constitutionally illegitimate impeachment inquiry of President Donald Trump. In the letter, the White House counsel, uh, Pat Cipollone, accused Democrats of attempting to both overturn the results of the 2016 election and influence the outcome of the 2020 contest through their impeachment push, which is exactly what, of course, they are, are doing. The president cannot allow your constitutionally illegitimate proceedings to distract him and those in the executive branch from their work on behalf of the American people, he wrote to Speaker Pelosi. Very interesting breaking news about Speaker Pelosi today, too. We'll get to that here in a little bit. The president has a country to lead, he added. Democrats opened the impeachment inquiry based on a whistleblower complaint 
filed against Trump on August 12th over a phone call that he had in July with Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. Now, again, uh, I have to remind everybody, the accusations in the whistleblower complaint by the leaker, who was not a whistleblower and did not actually hear the phone call, the allegations ended up being proven false. So we have the transcripts, we've got the foreign minister, and we have the actual president of Ukraine all saying none of what was alleged happened. So you, that, that's, I'm just taking the people outside of the White House and the intelligence community who are also saying that it didn't happen. We have that transcript. Okay, That transcript was declassified and released to the public and proved everything in the complaint completely incorrect. We now know that that so-called whistleblower, who is actually a leaker, has a close personal relationship uh, and working relationship with one of the nominees or the candidates to be the nominee of the Democratic Party who will run against President Trump. So they have a vested interest in damaging his reelection effort in order to help their good friend and current and or former employee. Uh, it's but it's basically said to be former employee, but there's a whole host of stuff. Uh, that leaker also violated the law. That leaker that lied about contacts with Schiff. Schiff lied about contacts with them. It's been a whole fiasco. Uh, so, again, this broke yesterday. Now, early in the show, we told you that Rudy Giuliani said that my position is coming from the White House. We're not going to participate in any of this. Nobody uh, from the executive branch is going to participate in this impeachment until Adam Schiff is removed. Then later in the show, near the end of the show, the letter was finally sent. The news broke that the White House was basically saying, this is an illegitimate impeachment effort, and we're not going to participate in it at all. Uh, and again, it is illegitimate. We'll get into that later on in the show. Probably not right now. Uh, again, Trump has denied any wrongdoing, and all of the evidence would point to him not doing anything wrong or incorrect. So uh, it's it's kind of interesting when your entire allegation against him is completely debunked, and they still move forward on this stuff. But we'll get into the rule changes and all of that stuff a little bit later on. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. I know that a lot of you want to talk about the Kurds. We'll probably do that next right here on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Uh, hey, Joe, do you want to just go ahead and go to the president here? The president is speaking on impeachments and Syria. We're getting ready to talk about the Kurds anyway. This is President Trump on Fox News. campaign that is helping to fuel our incredible economic boom. I guess the stock market's up close to 250 points today. And uh, this is despite lots of trade deals that are getting done one by one. We did a deal with South Korea, big one, really big one. And we did one uh, yesterday with Japan. And that now goes into effect and uh, tremendous for our farmers. Uh, As you know, uh, we have China coming. Uh, They'll be coming tomorrow. Uh, We have the vice premier of China coming. So we have a lot of big things happening. We have some tremendous deals under negotiation. So despite all of that, we have a great economy and a great market. Our housing market's on fire and uh, things are really doing well. You look at Asia, they're not doing well. Look at China's. China's having a hard time at this moment. And I think they'd like to make a deal very badly. And so we have a lot of things that are really exciting. And to be in the midst of negotiating some of the worst trade deals ever made uh, and to be breaking them up and changing them for the good of the American taxpayer and 
for our country and uh, to still be doing so well. We had over 100 record-breaking stock markets, I think in 121 or something. I'll get you the exact number. But many, many days we broke the record. And we continue to do well. And when these trade deals are done and when certain other things that we're doing are done, it's going to be at a level that's incredible. That was the cutest noise. What was it? I heard this. See, I'm used to hearing them. And there's nothing cute about them. So beautiful. And don't feel bad. He can just do whatever you want. That's a beautiful sound. Today, we take bold new action to protect Americans from out-of-control bureaucracy and stop regulators from imposing secret rules and hidden penalties on the American people. We're delighted to be joined on this occasion by Acting Director Russ Vogt, who has really done a fantastic job, Deputy Attorney Jeffrey Rosen. Are you busy enough, Jeff? And Congressman Mark Meadows. Mark, fantastic that you're here. Louisiana Solicitor General, who I'll be there. Liz Murrell. Where's Liz? I'll see you on uh, Friday. Yes, sir. I don't know if you'll be there, but we have a big crowd, so it's going to be great. Thank you very much, Liz. (laughs) And several other state and local officials, we want to thank you all for being here. For many decades, federal agencies have been issuing thousands of pages of so-called guidance documents a pernicious kind of regulation imposed by unaccountable bureaucrats in the form of commentary on how rules should be interpreted. All too often, guidance documents are a backdoor for regulators to effectively change the laws and vastly expand their scope and reach. Guidance has frequently been used to subject U.S. citizens and businesses to arbitrary and sometimes abusive enforcement actions. Ha! It sounds like they're talking about me. (laughs) I think they're talking about me. I might have a conflict in signing this deal. (laughs) Because of these materials and the fact that these materials are too often hidden and hard to find, many Americans learn of the rules only when federal agents come knocking on the door. This regulatory overreach gravely undermines our constitutional system of government. Unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats must not be able to operate outside of the democratic system of government. Wow. Imposing their own private agenda on our citizens. A permanent federal bureaucracy cannot become a fourth branch of government unanswerable to American voters. In America, the people must always reign. With us today is Andy Johnson from Wyoming, great place, whose family is one of many that suffered from the absurd redefinitions and interpretations of federal bureaucrats. And Andy is uh, here to say a few words. I'd like to hear that, Andy, because I think you might be speaking about me or to me. Thank you very much. Where's Andy? Come on up here with that beautiful baby. While while we wait for the president to turn his sights at some point to the ongoing uh, invasion, all right. Uh, so the president's obviously doing some of the, the other things that are going on there, and, and eventually we'll check back in with him maybe after the next commercial break. Uh, we'll hopefully have him talking about Syria and maybe impeachment and things like that. Um, now, what is interesting about Syria is that I've told you for a long time, one, that getting involved in Syria was a stupid idea, okay? Uh, it didn't make any sense. Regime change policy of the previous administration in Syria was that was a, a clear case of lessons not learned after Libya and elsewhere. 
made no sense uh, to go into Syria, none whatsoever. Now, in Syria, you do have Kurds, uh, and of course, you have this border with Turkey. Now, Turkey has traditionally been an American ally, and for those of you who've been listening to this program for a long time, you know that I've been warning you about Turkey for many years, including Erdogan and exactly what kind of an individual he is. Um, now, he claims that he is trying to prevent terrorism and things of that nature. The problem is, is that his regime is more Islamist than previous regimes, and I don't believe that the attempted coup was a real attempted coup because what ended up happening is the military didn't actually try to take control of anything. They refused to actually fight. And then uh, he squashed the coup and then he rounded up a bunch of teachers, political opponents, journalists and disappeared them. So this is this is not a country that I for many years I've been saying that we shouldn't let him into uh, into NATO, we should not be giving them military supplies. Of course, the president did stop some military supplies to Turkey. This is this country is a problem. Uh, Turkey has always had this scuffle with the Kurds in Syria. Okay, that is that is generational. All right, that has been happening for a long time. Obviously, you have the Kurds in Iraq and everything else. The Kurds are traditionally an American ally, and I I had said before when this was all happening because this was a disagreement that he had with General Mattis as well. Mattis wanted to be in Syria to protect the Kurds, and uh, the problem with that is if you do that, you are effectively annexing a part of a country in order to give the Kurds their own land. Uh, now, this is Kurdish territory within a, a country, but it's not their own country. And if you want to do that, okay, but you have to commit. And if you're going to commit, then then that, so be it. But we're not going to commit, and I know that, because you can go back to uh, Bush Sr., Bill Clinton, Bush Jr., and Obama, and now Trump. They've all abandoned the Kurds, every single one of them. The Kurds are a useful ally when we need them, and then we don't actually follow through with helping them. Now, that is a policy that I find abhorrent. I, I don't agree with any of those presidents going back to Bush Sr. And probably we could go back even further than that. That's just my my earliest uh, knowledge of it because of the Gulf War. You know, the Kurds rose up because we told them we would have their back if they did. They rose up and we didn't have their back and they got squashed. So this is a policy that the United States has had for a long time. I don't agree with it. Uh, I've said before, if we were going to be in Syria, what we should do is protect the Kurds. That's it. Nothing else. Leave everybody else alone. Let let everybody do their own thing. Uh, it wasn't thousands and thousands of troops that we were moving. Okay, it's we're talking like 50 or so is what the number ended up being. The problem is, is that Turkey wouldn't mess with certain areas because we were there. They didn't want to risk accidentally hurting one of our people. They didn't want to run into us uh, because if they did, obviously that would mean serious repercussions. Now, the president has said that he would destroy Turkey's economy if they got out of line here. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we knew that Turkey was going to attack the Kurds. They launched that attack last night, and that is exactly what they are doing. They are attacking the Kurds. Uh, now, there are groups that are saying seven civilians have died as a result of this. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. The president indicated that if civilians started dying, he would immediately take action against Turkey. So there's going to be um, some possibilities of propaganda that go here. And by the way, um, the Kurds are very good at, at propaganda, too, um, even though there are allies and our friends. I follow many Peshmerga who, who travel there regularly and fight uh, in various uh, various parts of the world uh, with Kurdish forces. So I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with it, but... 
Um, it is a complicated situation, and unless you're willing to do what we did with Israel and take a plot of land and say, this is now Kurdish territory, uh, which you can't do because the Kurds don't even all get along. So what do you do? Okay, and this is the thing. I, like I said, I don't, I don't agree, but we never should have been in Syria. So now going to Syria has made a complicated situation that much more complicated. But what do you do? You stay in Syria and just protect the Kurds? For how long? You're inside another country, a country that's not exactly friendly to the United States. And if you're going to do that for an extended period of time, okay, but you'd better be able to make that commitment. And I don't know that Americans want to make that commitment. And until we get to a point where we're going to stop treating the Kurds as mercenaries, to be perfectly honest with you, when they're useful... I don't know what else to do. I know my my strategy on this would have been completely different than Obama's and completely different than Trump's. But I also understand his reasoning, and I don't think it's flawed. I think that there's a lot of people who want to protect the Kurds because they're our allies, and I appreciate that. Turkey's technically our allies, too. So you're now dealing with two allies who are fighting each other. Well, when you have two friends fighting each other, what is usually the best course of action? Back away. Uh, now, if you can't break it up, and you can't, and by the way, um, the Kurds and the Turks have been killing each other even while we were in Syria all of these years. This is not something that just all of a sudden started. It's just that it's now open warfare. Um, I, I don't have an answer for you, folks. I don't. I don't like seeing it either, but I don't know that there is a better solution. We've got more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. sent me a message that says, careful, you'll get called an isolationist by both sides. And if you've listened to the show for any length of time, then you would know that the Kurds in Iraq, I had a different uh, different approach. I believe that Iraq should have been carved up, and they should have got their own land in Iraq. But then you would have to do that again in Syria. Uh, and they don't, like I said, they don't get along. So you can't, if you could have one Kurdish country and have all of the Kurds emigrate there like we do with Israel, that would be one thing. But it you can't because they don't get along. So then you're dealing with more tribal stuff. And they, like I said, they don't want to leave their ancestral lands. But getting involved in Syria with regime change in Syria was a stupid move. It ended up being a disaster over there. Um, it ultimately was a failed policy of the Obama administration. And, I mean, you're over there. You're, you're literally fighting three different sides at the same time. And, and at the same time that you're doing that, you're trying to avoid actually attacking russians so it's not none of the syrian policy made any sense at all obama is probably his biggest second biggest foreign policy failure was syria uh, luckily we were able to get it under control and defeat isis in syria but now that that mission is essentially done um you you are left with a decision all right we went there you know under regime change we're not going to change the regime um the new president doesn't want a regime change there. It wouldn't make any sense to have a regime change there. We basically killed ISIS. The caliphate is destroyed. Yes, there's still pockets of ISIS resistance, but nothing nothing that is a, a serious threat to real estate. Okay? Um, so do you, do you leave those pockets to fight for their lives against the Syrians and their allies and protect the Kurds? Uh, or do you just get out of it altogether? Because if you do protect the Kurds, you're going to be there forever. 
you know, and, and if that's, like I said, if that's something that the American public is willing to get into, then okay, uh, you could, I guess, but it is going to be a fiasco. And so the president has said, I'm not going to do that, you know, back away. Now, the Kurds in Iraq are different. I believe that we should have uh, carved up their own land in Iraq and made their own country. I, I firmly believe that, but um, we didn't. And, uh, and, and I understand why we didn't. I just wish that we had gone against that thinking. But, you know, the Kurds are, are great people. They're great allies. They're great fighters. They have an awesome culture. I wish them the best. Uh, but at the same time, being the buffer between them and Turkey in perpetuity didn't seem like a good strategy either. Got more coming up.